Uh, we are in Isaiah. We're going to begin this evening in chapter 45. <clears throat> Excuse me, Isaiah chapter 45. We are in the midst of this section that we talked about uh, a few times. We've mentioned it, how there are, in this portion of Isaiah's book, he's writing about three servants that he'll, you know, kind of touch on throughout, but then he'll zoom in and really focus on in waves, one servant after another, and go back and forth. And those three servants are, the first one is Judah, that's his disobedient servant. That's his servant who is in captivity twice over. One in captivity to sin, and one in captivity, not yet, but soon to be, to Babylon. The other is the special servant, Cyrus, the upcoming ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, he'll rise and ascend to power as... Uh, in, as a Persian political influencer and then become king of the Medes and then unite their forces and will conquer Babylon and then just will take over the map, basically. Um, but he's still, at the time of Isaiah's writing, he's still about, you know, a buck fifty away. It's 150, 160, 70 years or so before he even, you know, comes out of the womb. Uh, so we have a ways to go. But Cyrus is this one that the Lord has appointed in the future, he will be the one to save the people from one of their two captivities. They're in captivity, or they will be, to Babylon. And it will not be the good pleasure and grace of Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or anyone else that lets them out. It will be by the conquest of Cyrus, by the appointment and providence of God, that frees the people. Um, it's, it's in a roundabout way. They'll, they'll be conquered, and they'll, uh, Babylon will. And since Babylon has conquest over Judah, Judah will be conquered, kind of just as a package deal but then Cyrus will let them go. Why will he let them go? Well, you might find out tonight. The other servant, the third one, is the Messianic servant, that being Jesus Christ. Uh, so easy to remember, one starts with the J, one starts with the C, one starts with the J and the C. Judah, Cyrus, and Jesus Christ. This is the servant who will free them from the bigger, more important captivity, that is to say, sin's captivity. So we've obviously spent a lot of time talking about Judah. That's the whole first half of this book, with just pepperings and bare mentions here and there of the Messiah to come. We zoomed in on Judah again in the second half that starts with chapter 40, and we ended the previous chapter by getting a name drop of that second servant. Cyrus's name is mentioned in Isaiah's record, mentioned 150, thereabouts, years before he's born, certainly before he does any conquesting uh, of any kind. And now we're going to continue that in chapter 45 as we start really learning who this person is and how God's going to use him, and more importantly, why God is using him. And it's not because Cyrus is so great, but because, so he's going to hitch his wagon to him. No, it's because God is so great, he's going to do amazing things through him, so he gets the glory. So notice Isaiah 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his, the King James says, anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of the kings to open before him the two levied gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Second half of this verse is your standard kind of Isaiah sort of way he writes where he uses these kind of big flowery phrases to just basically say, you're going to get your butt kicked. He's going to come in with his conquesting army and he's going to overthrow your kingdoms. He's going to burst open your gates and no one's going to shut them to keep him out. If he wants in, he's getting in. If he wants to take over, he's going to take over. So the first half of the verse is a little more interesting. It's where God really zeroes in on who this person is and what's so special about him. Working backwards... He says, he's this one who will loosen the loins of kings. He's the one who's going to break the shackles that rulers put on other nations, namely his own Judah. He is one who will subdue nations before him. He will set his sights on a prize, and it's like they've already been conquered. If he wants you, he's going to take you. 
His right hand is being held by God. The right hand is the dominant hand in Hebrew writing. It's the hand that if God's holding, that he's working with you to do uh, his goodwill. It's just often more often than not, you think it's your goodwill. You think it's you who's in charge, but it's actually God working. You're just the puppet on the string. His name is Cyrus. We went, I think, a good deal about that last week. No need to reiterate the <laughs> remarkableness of Isaiah name-dropping the fellow before he's ever born. This is not a common name. If his name was like Joshua or Jude or something like that, or, or something that's prevalent throughout the Old Testament, then you could say, ah, coincidence. Cyrus is not a common name. It's just his name. And there it is. But he calls him in my Bible, thus says the Lord, to his anointed. Is that what your Bible says? Nobody's Bible says Messiah, right? It's the same word in the Hebrew. And the only context would tell you, is he talking about Jesus? Is he saying Cyrus is the Messiah? No, he's not saying Cyrus is the Messiah. Cyrus is a Messiah, because the word Messiah just means anointed one, one chosen for a task. And in this case, his task is not spiritual salvation, but Babylonian salvation. Not demonic salvation, but Babylonian salvation. Verse 2. I will go before thee, God says, to Cyrus. And make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. Babylon, the city, was renowned for its big giant gates, which were made of brass, or its many, uh, you know, um, adjacent towns and cities and realms that were fortified by iron fences. A reference here to gates of brass and iron that God will break. It sounds like God's saying, I'm going to take care of this, I'm going to take care of that. But the real point that God is trying to make in this second verse is, Cyrus is not the dominant, powerful figure that everyone's going to be afraid of. Really, it's God. That all Cyrus can do is what God allows him to do. When you watch Cyrus from a distance and you see him conquer this nation, like the way he takes Babylon, such an impressive feat of subterfuge and, and political strength and, and uh, clever tactical maneuvering. It's this combination of things that allows him to take the city of Babylon. You think, wow, Cyrus is so great. But God says, yeah, I opened the door. I let him in. He, he conquers this nation over here that has these great fortifications. And he just plows over and you think, wow, his army is so strong. And God says, I loosen him up. I soften him up. I open the gates. I broke the gates. I let him go in. God deserves the glory. God deserves the credit for all that Cyrus will accomplish. That's the point of verse 2. Verse 3. And I will give you, still speaking to Cyrus, the treasures of the King James's darkness, dark places, and the hidden riches of secret places, so that you may know that I, the Lord, which call you by your name, am the God of Israel. You will find liars and common and scoffers alike who will try to argue and dispute with you about the usage of Cyrus at the beginning of this chapter and at the end of the former chapter. And they will say, as we've gone over, I'm not going to restate the whole rant, how, well, they obviously added that later because they couldn't have possibly known it was Cyrus. Well, no, obviously they couldn't have known. That's why it's inspired. God knew. They didn't know. That's the whole point. That's what makes it so amazing. But if you don't believe in inspiration, as some People who call themselves Christian professors will say they don't believe in inspiration. Well, he couldn't have known about it, so they must have just added that in later. Well, they would have had to add a whole lot in later, which would have eventually raised a lot of red flags because it's not just sticking in a name here and there. You have references like in verse 3 where God's saying, that name I just called you, I called you that name for a reason. It's not just name dropping for the sake of name dropping. It's He, he drops his name in verse 1, and he drops it in the previous chapter as well to draw attention to the fact that this is a prophecy. 
It's not just, oh, the Jews had a hymn there, and they took out the H-I-M, they slapped in a C-Y-R-U-S. They, they took the vague name and put a specific name. No, the whole point of this is all built on the foundation of, I'm going to use this guy's name here so that you will know, wow, this is a prophecy. And he's talking to Cyrus here in this text. I'm going to use your name so that you, 150 years later, will see your name and say, wow, my name is in your Bible. I must have some connection with you. And they'll say, yeah, maybe let us go home. And Cyrus will say, yeah, maybe I should. And that's a quick and dirty version of it, but that's what happens. They, they go up to him, according to Josephus, the historian, they go up to him and they say, have you seen your name right here? How it says you're going to do amazing things and let us out of prison? And let us out of Babylon? And Cyrus will say, well, I'll be doggone. I guess you're free to go. That's basically what will happen. So the whole point of using his name is for that end, so that God can accomplish his will. Again, verse 3. I'm going to give you all these treasures, give you all these riches, things that are not just out in the open, but are the darkest, secretest places where they hide their treasures. You'll conquer these cities, you'll take their riches, and you'll do all these things so that you will know that I am with you. When you have the success, it's because I'm holding your hand, and you'll want to credit me, you'll want to thank me for your prosperity. Me who calls you by name in their Hebrew text. And Cyrus will think, well, how can I possibly thank God for all this? And they'll say, I've got a good idea. You can let us go back to Judea. And so he will. Isaiah 45, verse 4. I mean, just, just pause. For, I'm sorry. I'm going to fit this the last time I'll rant about this. <laughs> just the idea that to say, well, they only added that centuries later makes no sense. Because if that's the case, then they had nothing to bring to Cyrus to get out of Persian captivity. They were under Persian rule. So what are they going to say? What are they going to bring to the table to convince him to let them go? they got nothing. Bupkis, squat. If they don't have his name in their Bible. So if you're going to say they wrote it later, listen, if someone just comes up to you, if, if you're in prison, the government puts you in prison, and you go to the president who's signing pardons, say, did you know your name is in my holy book? I just, it, it's here. It's been, actually, it's been around for centuries. He's going to be like, I've never seen that book before. You just wrote that yesterday. Well, that's exactly what Cyrus would have said unless he knew this book is old. His name had been in there a long time. So obviously they didn't just write it yesterday. It would, it would shock you how many people call themselves gospel teachers and preachers who will say things like, well, they clearly wrote that after the fact. Like, do you not believe in the Holy Spirit inspiration of the Bible? Because if you don't, why are you wasting your time in this profession? We need more plumbers. We need more educators of a secular kind. We need more flight attendants. Get out of the religious business. Verse 4. I'm done. Stop bringing it up. For Jacob, my servant's sake. This is all Cyrus will do. Will be for Jacob, my servant's sake. And Israel, my elect. I have even called you by your name. I have surnamed you, though you have not known me. I have identified you. I have targeted you. I have chosen you before you were twinkle in your grandmother's eye. I picked you out to be my guy. Why? Because Cyrus is so great? No, because my people need someone, and I'm choosing you for the task. They are going to be in Babylonian captivity. You're going to take over Babylon, so they're going to be in your captivity, and I don't want them there. I want them back home where they can be able to receive my Messiah to come, my real servant to come. So I'm choosing you for the sake of my people. It's not because of Cyrus, not because of Judah, because of God. Verse 5, who is this to make this request? I am the Lord, he says, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded you, though you have not known me. 
I wrapped you with all of your power and your prestige and your prominence and every position of, of eloquence that you have. I'm the one who clothes you in that. I'm the one who basked you in that great light and power that you hold. I did. Not any of the many gods that you serve. Cyrus was not a Jew, a proselyte Jew, a devout uh, Hellenistic, well, they would be Hellenistic, Persianistic Jew who, who kept Jew, Jewish uh, religion while keeping his national culture. He wasn't like that at all. He was a pagan. He worshipped other gods to the day he died. But he acknowledged Jehovah was at least one of those gods. And God said, even though you don't know me, I knew you. And I chose you. Verse 6. So that, you, so that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, from east to west, from as far as you can see in both directions, infinity, there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is none else. A phrase you see repeated a lot in Old Testament, especially Isaiah. He loves that phrase. He is the Lord and there is none else. Find me another God. You can't. You can name something else a God if you want. I can call that uh, marker board a God if I want. I can even worship it if I want. That doesn't make it a God, except in my vain imagination. There is none else but God who deserves the name. Verse 7. I form the light. I create darkness. I make peace. I create evil. I, the Lord, do these things, and implied there, and no one else can, does or will. He alone formed the light and created darkness, not any idol from any Jewish religion, after they had fallen into paganism, from any Cyrus religion, that he worshiped no one else. He makes peace. He saves those who repent. He creates evil. He punishes those who don't repent. He is the ultimate authority. He is the absolute standard. He is the maker of the world. So obviously, if he made the place, he would have a vested interest in its affairs. Why is God in all of, up in the business of Cyrus and Judah and Egypt and all these other nations in Babylon? It's because God made those places. He has an interest in them. He is their potter, as we'll see in the illustration in just a minute. Verse 8, drop down, ye heavens, from above. Let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation. Let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. This, like the first uh, nine-tenths of this, chapter, this verse, verse 8, is like the song of Judah's salvation. When they're freed from bondage in Babylon, when they're allowed to return home, they'll be singing songs that include these kind of phrases, heaven and righteousness as Poured down from the sky. Blessings have burst forth from the ground. Salvation has come. It's ours to be had. It's righteousness springing up all over the place. And God says, yeah, I did that. I know Cyrus put his name on the piece of paper that said you're free to go. But I did that. Who was holding his right hand when he signed it? I'm holding his right hand. I did that. I created that. So verse 9. So who are you to question my motives? Who are you to question my methods? That's, that's not the question. That's, I'm, I'm getting to the question, but that's the implication behind verse number 9. Because the Jews reading this are going to hear this and they're going to think, God is going to use this pagan, this idolater, this non-Jew to save us. Don't we need a Jewish Messiah? You'll get one later. It's for the other thing. This, you're in Babylon, you're in Persia, so you're going to get a Persian Savior. You're going to get a Persian anointed one. But they say, I don't want some dirty mongrel non-Jew saving me. I question your methods, God. Surely there's a better way to do this. It is not for you to question his methods. Woe unto him, verse 9, that strives with his maker. The word strive to debate, to argue with. Hold on a minute there. I think you should do this differently. No, that's not for you to do. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. You are a pot that God has 
shaped and molded from the clay. You want to argue with somebody? Argue with another pot. You don't argue with the clay maker. Shall the clay say to him that fashions it, What are you making? Answer me. Explain yourself. Or, or thy work, he has no hands. In other words, if, you're, if the clay could talk, it's a Disney movie. You're making the, the pottery with the clay. If the clay were to spot, if you make a mouth, because you'd have to make it. That's the great thing about being God. You make these things. So you make a little mouth, and the mouth starts moving and flapping its point its lips, and it says, well, what are you making here? Well, I, I need answers. I need explanation. No, you don't. You need to be quiet. That's when he takes the lips off that he put on there with the clay. You need to be quiet. It's not your place to ask questions. You're the pottery. He's the potter. He's the maker. You're the maid. So you just sit there and enjoy the fact that he blessed you with life. You don't get to ask him, well, I think I have a say in my affairs. No, no, they're his affairs. You belong to him. Or to say he has no hands. The phrase, the king says, I want, in fact, I want to get your translation. Into verse number nine, the last little quotation there. Mine says he has no hands. What does yours say? Handles. He has no handles? Yeah. But the idea is um, the, the, the fine delicacy. Like you, you need hands to do anything, but like you need steady experienced hands to make the little particulars and the, the, the nuance and the, the subtleties of the pottery. To challenge you to question him. This maker who has only ever made the most exquisite, beautiful pottery to say, have you got a steady enough hand for this job? Are you sure you're up to this? Are you sure you're not over the hill? God is batting a thousand when it comes to doing anything. It is not for us to say, are you sure you got this one? Yeah, he's got this one. You don't get to argue that. Verse 10. Woe, same idea, just presented differently. Woe unto him that says to his dad, What have you begotten? What kind of child have you made? Or says to his mother, What have you brought forth? It is not the place of a disobedient son to say, It's not my fault, it's bad genes. You made me this way. No, you chose to be that way. I made you. You were a beautiful baby. Last time I saw you, I said you were perfect. And then you grew up and screwed up. It's not for you to say to your mother, Well, Clearly, you should have birthed a better son. No, you should be a better son. These are about choices, and you're making the wrong ones. You don't get to say that to your parents. It's not their fault that you chose to do wrong. Even if, and you get the whole nurture nature thing, we're not going to do that. But even if you grew up in a terrible environment, and so you're predisposed by culture to make bad choices, they're still your bad choices. And there is a litany of examples of people who grew up in terrible environments who learned the right way to live and grew up in out of those environments. So you can't just blame genetics is the point. God made you. Don't blame God. Let him do his work. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the Maker of Israel. He says, quote, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. Command you me. To those doubters, to those arguers, to those whiners, God says, Here's what the Lord says. Here's what the Holy One of Israel says. Here's what the maker, master, potter of the clay molded into a vase of Israel says. I give you the opportunity to ask. Not to critique, but to ask of the things to come concerning my sons. That's you people. Now, you're not, you shouldn't have to, but here again is the mercy of God, where he just kind of humbles himself and allows himself to say, fine, ask me your questions. You want to presume? I'll give you the floor. Ask me your questions. You got nothing. Twelve. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens. I thought we were talking about Cyrus. Where did he go? Cyrus is just a puppet, as is Judah. God's the one in control. I made the earth and created man upon it. 
I, even my hand, stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. Who is any person to question the motives, the methods, the means of the, the, the mighty maker above? I and I alone with my hands have made the earth and stretched out the heavens. Now look, the heavens is comprised of a lot of planets, but we're on this one, so we start there. I made the earth. Now here we are standing on the earth, and I know the window's closed, but if you could turn off these lights and open that window, I, I assume the sky is clear and the, the sun is down. You could look out and you could see the twinkling host of, of the stars up in the sky. It is not for you to say, I think that one, ah, it's probably over there. Let's, let's move that one over there. Did you put that one there? Can you move that one over there? If you can move that one over there, then by all means, put it where you think it should go. But the presumption and the arrogance for someone to say to the maker of that star, which from my vantage point on the earth, is, is that big, but if I was to get up close to it, it's 20 times larger than the sun. For me to say to the God who made it on a Tuesday, I think that should be over there. That's arrogant presumption. There's no place for that as a servant of God. 13. I have raised, it might not have been Tuesday, don't quote me on that. It was one of the days. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all thy ways. He shall build my city. He shall let go my captives, not for the price nor for the reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now we're back to Cyrus. After we've spent a nice little segue of about a dozen verses reminding us who's actually in control, God says, now let's go back to the one I'm using. Because it's going to be very easy to put all my focus on Cyrus. He's the one I see. He's the one doing all the stuff. He's the one talking really loud. God doesn't always speak. God doesn't always talk really loud. He doesn't always show a big booming voice in the sky or a big thunderous power. So he has to remind us that he's still capable of that. And even if he doesn't, he's working behind the scenes, as we'll see in a couple of verses. So back to Cyrus. God says, I who can do all these things, who made the stars, the host, everything else, I chose Cyrus. I raised him up. In righteousness. That doesn't mean Cyrus was righteous. It means Cyrus will do this right thing that God wants him to do. And I will direct his ways. doesn't mean everything he does is good or godly. It means what he will do in this context will be what God wants him to do. He'll do a lot of things that are sinful. And his nation will fall because of their sins. But when it comes to saving Judah, that's exactly what God wants. He shall build my city. Not directly. He's not going to go out there with hammer and chisel and stone. But he's going to allow the people to return home. To rebuild Jerusalem. And he shall let go my captives. Same thing. Not for price nor for reward. No one's going to bribe him. No one's going to pay him off. No one's going to sweet talk him, schmooze him, and get their way. No, rather he's going to do it by the providence and the will of God. To please the Lord, says the Lord of hosts. 14. Thus says the Lord. The labor of Egypt, the merchandise of Ethiopia, and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over unto thee, Cyrus, he's talking to, and they shall be thine. They shall come after you, in chains they shall come over, and they shall fall down unto you. They shall make supplication unto you, saying, quote, Surely God is in you, and there is none else. The King James says there is no God, but that doesn't mean there's no God. It means there's, there's no God but God, is what they're saying. And they're not calling Cyrus God. This is Isaiah's way of describing all the things that Cyrus will do since God's in control, God will get the credit for. And so when they praise Cyrus, through him they're praising God. When they bow down to Cyrus, through him they're bowing down to God. That's just the big kind of metaphorical way it's described here in verse 14. He's going to be this powerful conquering ruler spreading his empire at least if not more to Egypt and Ethiopia and Sabia, which is near Egypt and Ethiopia, African countries. 
Now, you will find references of people who will try to read the mess messianic uh, overtones in this. This is not a messianic Jesus text. This is talking about Cyrus and his power that he'll wield over the world for the benefit of God's nation. They will say, among other things, verse 15, about the Lord. He is a God that, my Bible says, hides himself. What's your Bible say? Same thing? Doesn't mean he's afraid so he hides under his bed. God is not afraid. God can do anything. But why would he be afraid? Rather, it means he stays in the back sometimes. He doesn't always. Sometimes he comes out in the forefront. But sometimes he stays in the back. He's worked the system, wound it up, and lets it go, and sits back and waits and watches what it does. He'll intervene and back out again. Intervene and back out again. He'll hide himself when necessary. This God of Israel, the, what's your last word say? Savior, something like that? Savior of Israel. That's the whole point. It's not Cyrus' conquest. It's not checks to, uh, check marks to his glory. It's God's glory, not Cyrus's. Saving Israel is the point. Verse 16. They shall be ashamed and also confounded, all of them. They shall go to confusion together that are who? The maker of idols. Now we're not talking about Cyrus in this case. We're talking about Egypt and Ethiopia and the Sabians and all these other nations that he'll conquer. As he conquers them, he's going to be overthrowing their gods. He's going to be overthrowing their idols. That's the, the one common denominator for all of these conquests that happen all throughout Bible history and, and even beyond. When a nation would conquer another nation in the conquest uh, part of it, in the conquest you know, period, when they're still in the middle of it, and there's still some hope that maybe our nation that's being you know, ravaged and attacked can survive, those people are going to be praying and bowing and screaming and crying and sacrificing to all their idols, begging and hoping and pleading that their idols will come through and save the day and stop this great conqueror. It never happens. The only time it has happened is when Assyria came to, Egypt, uh, to Israel and they all prayed to their God. In fact, they didn't. The king prayed to his God and that God saved the nation. Except that was the real God and it was Israel. It was Judah in, in the end of this first half of Isaiah. Every other time, it's people praying to some false god, false idols, begging them for relief. And every single time, the nation is conquered. And what does that prove? Those gods were worthless. Worth less than the chunks of wood they were carved from. They couldn't do squat. They couldn't do anything for them. All they did was waste everyone's time. So those who pray to them and make them and need them will be ashamed and confounded, disappointed, insulted. All of them. They'll go to confusion together. They'll be insulted, literally. Together, I thought you would help me. That's the whole point. I bought you. I put you in the mantle. You're supposed to save me, teddy bear-shaped idol. Well, it can't. It's worthless. Verse 17. But Israel shall be saved. It shall be saved in the Lord, not some idol. It shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Because sometimes bad guys come back. Sometimes you kick them out, you push them away, and they redouble their efforts, and they come back meaner and stronger and more determined than ever, and then they take you. And sometimes they take you, and you beat them away, and you drive them off, and then they come back, and they reconquer you again. Look, just look at the history of, of Europe and all the wars they have where you think, finally, we've defeated this evil. We defeated Germany. They're gone for good. And then one generation later, it's not, it's not, it's not. And then they almost take over the whole world. You can't ever always be sure you put down the bad guy. But when God saves a nation... You're saved. My Bible says it's an everlasting salvation. Literally, a salvation that is always. That's what it literally, how you translate. Of course, you wouldn't translate that way. It's not grammatically right. But isn't that very beautiful and poetic? God will give you a salvation that's not temporary. It's not a salvation with an expiration date. It's not a salvation in case of emergency it might break. It's a salvation that is always. 
you're going to be fine because you're with him. So therefore, into the verse, you shall not be ashamed nor confounded. And there's another little beautiful Hebrew expression that means forever, world without end. How long will this world stand? It's for that long you can trust God's going to take care of you. And when the world does finally end, you won't need to worry about it. So it's over. Verse 18. For thus says the Lord, skip the middle part, I am the Lord and there is none else. That's what the Lord says. In the middle, he describes himself. He gives you his credentials. He gives you his resume. Why should I trust him when he says, I am the Lord, there's none else? Thus says the Lord, parenthetical, who created the heavens, the God himself who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who creates it not in vain, but he formed it to be inhabited. In other words, I'm the Lord who made the world, who made you, who put you in the world, who gave you a purpose. So if I did all of that, I didn't waste my time, I have a plan for you. And so if I say you're going to be okay, trust me. If you don't trust me, then trust some other God who can make the world. If you find him, let me know. So far, there's just the him. 19. I have not spoken, King James says, in secret. Is that what your Bible says? I haven't whispered something to somebody and then whispered something to somebody else over here so that nobody really knows what the truth is or what I'm planning on doing. I'm not being vague here. Now, he does speak you might use the phrase, in secret. He gives visions to people in dreams in the middle of the night. Well, that's not public. But then they get up and they proclaim that dream publicly. They, they write down their visions from God publicly. So he's not speaking in secret. He's not saying one thing to you, another thing to you, and then you disagree. Although if you listen to modern religions, they would apparently think that's the way it works, but that's not how it works. He's got one thing he says. I'm not spoken in secret in some dark place of the earth. I have not said to the seed of Jacob... Seek me for nothing. King James says, seek me in vain. I haven't told you to seek me knowing that it would be for nothing. He's not playing games here. He's not mocking us here. He's not laughing at us. He's not treating us like mice through an obstacle course. Let's see these morons if they get to the end and then we'll take the cheese away at the last second. He's not playing games. He's not asking you to seek him knowing it'll be for nothing. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. Take it to the bank. It's true, reliable, solid. I declare things that are right. So if he says I'll take care of you, take it to the bank. 20. Assemble yourselves and come, the King James says. Literally, gather yourselves together and make the journey. Where are you? Far away? Fine, make the journey. Close by? Make the journey. To where? Isaiah, way back, chapter 2. Go up to the mountain where the Lord's house is. Make the journey. Find the Lord. He'll be there to greet you. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together. Who? You that are escaped of the nations. You who survived the fall of your kingdom and your kingdom and yours when Cyrus takes over and destroys and everything else. And you feel like a refugee. Fine, you're a refugee. Find home with God. All you who have escaped, fled from your nations. Who have no knowledge that have set up the wood of the graven image. And pray to a God that cannot save. Stop doing that. Stop wasting your time with idols that can't save you. Come to the God who can save you. 21, tell and bring them near. Take your, take your gods. I've got my God here. They can't save me. Is it worthless? Yes, but wait, before you destroy it, bring it up here. Come, come up to the mountaintop, verse number 20. Bring your God with you. Bring your idol up here. Let's see what it can do. Let's, let's poke it a couple of times, see if it'll, if it'll laugh. Let's prick it, see if it'll bleed. 21, bring them near. Let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from the ancient time? Let's, let's start swapping stories. 
I'll talk about how I created the universe from nothing, and your idol can talk about whatever he's done lately. What's he done lately? Well, he sat there, and he hasn't really done much else than that. After I carved him, that, he doesn't have a windy thing. They hadn't invented those yet. He just sits there. So that's what he can do. Well, meanwhile, I made the universe. So yeah, it's a little bit of a, you know. Who, let's declare things from the ancient time. Who has told it from that time? Let's, let's pick a thing that was foretold a long time ago and has come to fruition. Who did that foretelling? Was it your God? No, it was you, Jehovah. Yeah, that's right, it was. And it's always been me. I'm always the one back here saying what will happen. Never some idol. Have not I the Lord declare those things? And there is no God besides me. A just God and a Savior. Can you imagine? Just think about it for a second, people. If God was mean. Just imagine if God was not merciful. If he was not forgiving. If he was not even just patient. Just imagine if God was a jerk. But he's not. Aren't you thankful? Because you only have one. There is only one God. Aren't you glad he's not a jerk? There is no one but God. A just God and a Savior. Which really, if you break it down, those are contradictory things. Because justice sometimes means my condemnation. But we're not in chapter 53 yet. He'll find a way to work around that loophole and still be a Savior. There is none beside me. No one's on my level. It's just me. Not a jerk. 22. So look unto me and be ye saved. Who's he talking to? Well, obviously he's talking to Judah, right? That's his people. He's got the covenant with them. He's got the circumcision. And he's got the, the uh, covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's got the national heritage. And they've got the lineage. What does he say? Look unto me and be saved. What? What's the next clause? Verse 22. Come on, don't be shy. All the ends of the earth. Who's that? Is that just Judah? It's everyone. It's everybody. He's writing this in, in the Hebrew Bible to the Hebrew people going into their captivity, and he's talking about their salvation is not just for them. Because they're not just going into Babylonian captivity for sin. They're going into Babylonian captivity for sin, and thus the devil's captivity for sin. In that case, the whole world is already there. They're all in captivity to sin. You want salvation? I am God, there is none else. Who's going to save them? All the ends of the earth have to come to me. For I am God, there is none else. Who, who, I mean, just think about that. If, if there's only the one God, so he's the only one who can save, no one else could save. So he must be the God who creates the mean, mean of salvation. Because no one else could. So he can't be just the savior of the Jewish people. He must be the savior of everybody else too. Because who else are we going to turn to? We can't be saved. Otherwise, 23, I have sworn by myself, he says, when we swear, which you should not do, we say things like, I swear to God. Well, he's not yours to swear to. Oh, I swear on my mother's grave. Well, she's still alive and it wouldn't matter because you didn't make her. Did you make her? Well, I swear in the lives of my children. Oh, they're not yours anymore. I mean, you birthed them. Parentally, they belong to you, but who's breathing in and out? It's their life now. So you can't, you can't own their life to swear against. What's your collateral to make me believe you're not a liar? You say, I swear, and I'll say these magic words, I swear on whatever to make you believe I'm not a liar. This is why Jesus says don't swear, just be honest. That's the best collateral, that's the best oath you could ever take, is if you're a trustworthy person, you won't need to say I swear, blah, blah, blah. blah. So what are you going to swear against? You can, nothing belongs to you. Nothing is yours. Even if you swear on your own life, you didn't make you. 
So who are you swearing against? God? What could God possibly take an oath against? There's nothing bigger than him. The Jews would swear on the temple because they would see the temple is bigger than them, but God rightly, Jesus rightly pointed out, the temple is not your house. It's my house. Don't swear on my house. So what is God going to swear against? What is greater than God? Nothing. As he said a dozen times, there is none beside me. So what does he do? I swear by myself. In other words, if I don't come through with this promise, I'm not me. I'm not God. I cease to be. And since he's still out there, he hasn't broken one yet. So I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and my Bible says, and shall not return. In other words, I don't speak rashly. I don't speak uncarefully. I don't speak uh, without consideration for what I'm saying and how it will be interpreted. I'm very careful with my words. So if I speak, you can know it's the truth. So it shall not return. I won't have to say it and say, oh, wait, i got to take that back. That's not, I didn't mean it that way. No, no, don't interpret it that way. No, I'm going to say my words and not pull them back. That unto me, here's finally the oath, that unto me every knee shall bow. That's the first bill. Right? Isn't that the first bill? Yes. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear fealty to him. Here's my oath that ultimately in this chapter, through Cyrus, these nations will bow down and serve Cyrus. But who's, who's the marionette operator? Who is moving the strings? Through obedience to Cyrus, it's obedience to me. Through submission to Cyrus, it's submission to me. That's the idea of Psalm 45. Now, where have you heard that phrase before? Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Revelation. Anywhere else? This, it starts in Philippians. You're right. You're close. Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. That at the name of whom? Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall kiss. Jesus. Jesus. So here's what Isaiah does with the text. God's speaking. He says, through Cyrus, you'll submit to me of a worldly kind. You'll bow to Cyrus, but I'm pulling the strings, so you're bowing to me. Now, Paul takes that same idea, and he says, now let's apply it spiritually. <coughs> through Jesus, you will submit to God. You will yield to him. You'll swear fealty to Jehovah. How? What right do I have to approach the presence of God even to bow down to him? I will do so through Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, through his authority, every knee shall bow and tongue shall confess. That doesn't necessarily mean that everybody will obey the gospel. It just means everybody should, if they're going to, do it through Jesus. Philippians 2, 9 and 10. One more verse, I think. No, two more verses. I got time. Surely shall one say, 24, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. People will be heated up with anger, and they will try to fight God's people, but they will fail, be disappointed, ruined. Why? Because God's unbeatable. Track record has never been touched. 25, last verse. In the Lord shall the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. And that's messianic. Oh, the whole point of getting out of Persian captivity is not, oh, you poor babies, it must be so terrible there. Let me get you out. Come here, I'll hold you, kiss you. No, it's you've got to come back here because it's there where the Messiah will come. And it's through him that the whole world will be saved. See, if this was just about saving Judah, he could save Judah and Persia. He's going to save the world. So he's got bigger plans for the whole world, which means it's got to happen right there in Bethlehem that the whole world will come to salvation. Well, in Calvary and Jerusalem. So it's in the Lord that all the seed of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. But it's not just about you. I'm going to use you to save the whole world. Comments or questions from anybody? Because the bell's at 20 seconds to go or so. All right. Isaiah 46 next week. 46 and 47, I, I believe, are short. So we should combine them both and get them both done next week. We're getting done down to the end of this section. 
And after it, we're going to shift to really talking about Jesus, which will build us up into chapter 53 and so forth. That's all I got. You guys can go. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash Matthew-Martin 414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then. But for the most part, I put everything behind a massive giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of, I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can, if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's, you know, it's not easy, but if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dash Martin 414 and hit subscribe for a buck and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right. Thank you.